0: I love stories. I love stories. I love to read. I love movies. Like, I love stories. That's what sucks me in. That's why I realized. I'm going to offend like 80% of people here. I'm not a big musical person. It's okay that you are. I love that you are. I've just never been in the grocery store and had anybody burst into song about lettuce. I I just like a story. You know, like like people love Les Mis. It's like I like the first half hour and then it's like, okay, I've lost interest. But the movie version of Les Mis, like the movie, not the singing version, but like the Liam Neeson version, like, I'm in for that because it's story driven. I love story. I find that so compelling. I can appreciate a good action sequence as much as the next guy, let's not get crazy, but I really love the guts of a story. Stories resonate with us, and true stories in particular. True stories resonate the most. Think about it, when you go see a movie and it's, and it's based on a true story, like, that, it just kind of pops in, in a significant way. Right? Think of the last couple years, there's been a lot of movies that have come out that are based on true stories, that are, have done wildly, been wildly successful, have won Oscars. Like, think of a couple. right? The Butler came out in 2013. It's about a White House steward and been there for 30 years and all the stuff that he'd seen. It's, it's really impressive. What stinks is when you find out that a story is like less true than you thought, right? There's a difference between a true story and based on a true story. Or I saw a new one this weekend, inspired by a true story. That's like, you just, you wanna be true story adjacent. Because th- think of like the butlers, this great story. and It's about this guy with his two sons, but it turns out when you dig into it, that the emotional sort of climax of the movie is this, his son dying in Vietnam, it's this tragic moment. That son didn't even exist. They made him up. Not only is he not, he's got a tragic death and he's not even real. You know, Argo won the uh, one best picture Oscar. This incredible story about the CIA rescuing uh, people out of the, the uh, Iran hostage crisis. I and mean, this terrible moment in time. And they, they created this, this fake movie to go and kind of rescue these people. Sounds amazing, only uh, former President Jimmy Carter said 90% of the credit should go to the Canadians, not the CIA, which makes it sting even a little bit more. Or The Revenant, which won Best Picture in 2016. This movie revolves around the idea that American explorer Hugh Glass endured these terrible injuries and survived this brutal journey, all so that he could avenge the death of his son problem is there's no record anywhere of Hugh Glass having a son. Yeah, yeah. That disappointment you feel right now, you're not alone. Like, I feel that too. There's a difference between a true story and based on a true story. The trueness of a story matters to us. And we're going to look at that idea this morning as we continue our series, Heroes, Heroes we looking at some people that we would consider heroes of the Old Testament and under, better understanding their story, their flaws, and how they really ultimately point to the true hero, to the greater hero, to Jesus. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to be looking at one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. I just absolutely love this story. If you're new and you grab it on the Bibles outside, 1 Kings is in the Old Testament. It's in the first half of—it's uh, probably about halfway through the first half of the Bible— Let me give you some background as we dive into this. 1 Kings 18. So Israel is split into two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and Ahab is king of the northern kingdom, and he is just this evil, evil dude, evil dude. His wife is evil too, just a whole lot of evil going on there. And there's a drought in the land, and the drought leads to famine. And the subtext of what's going on is that Israel has turned from God to other things again. Again. That's kind of Israel's go to move, right? As they show up somewhere and they just kind of turn from God. It's just kind of their move. They got to be brought back, they turn from God, then they turn back to Him, then they turn away from Him again. And this is a place where they've turned from, from God, from the true God to other things. And there's a moment where there's going to be a showdown, right? That Elijah is seen as a, a troublemaker, right? Elijah's a prophet, a, a man that God had raised up to speak for him, to speak his truth to his people. And uh, Ahab accuses him of kind of messing things up. And Elijah says, I haven't made trouble for for Israel. He's like, you have, because the evil you've done, because of all the things that you've caused the people to do, you've abandoned the Lord's commands. You've, You've followed these false gods. So he says, let's have a showdown. Gather all the people from all throughout the land and come meet at Mount Carmel and bring 450 prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of Asherah. And we'll have this showdown right here. That's where we are. Now, you need to know a couple things here, right? One of the things that they were struggling with is the Canaanite people were a polytheistic, had a polytheistic religion, sort of this pluralistic worship, which meant, it's a fancy way of saying they had a lot of gods. They had a lot of different gods. Because in an ancient context, one of the ways that you can, you can exert control on your surroundings is you have a god for everything you don't understand. Does that make sense? And the way you can exert control is if there are things that you need to happen in your life, like you need water to fall from the sky, you need your crops to grow, you put a God in charge of that thing, and then you can influence that God by the quality of your sacrifice, right? So if you need your crops to grow and they don't grow one year, well, then, oh, it's my fault. I'm, I, I didn't give a good enough sacrifice. So I'll give a better sacrifice next year, right? That, that's sort of the subtext that we see that there, it's an effort to exert control in their surroundings by having these gods for different things. And two of the most significant gods that we see at this time were Baal and Asherah. Now, Baal was a storm god, was the god of rain, was god of, he controlled lightning, he was a god of fertility as well, and Asherah was a goddess of fertility. And so the Israelites living there, they, they want their crops to grow, so they adopt these gods. Now, it's not so much as they've rejected God completely, as much as they've added these other gods into the mix to cover their bases. Right? And that's an important distinction. It's not that they've rejected God completely. What they've done is more subtle, but equally as dangerous. They've added other things to their worship of God. Think of it as God plus. They've added other things to their worship of God. And so Elijah wants to bring this moment to a head. He wants to have this confrontation. So he gathers all the people and he says to them in verse 21 says, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. That's an interesting question to ask, right? Because we might at first think like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why even make Baal an option? Like that's, that's the wrong thing to do. Like why even give Baal as an option for people? You want him to follow the true God. You want him to follow Yahweh, the, the, the God of the Israelites. You want him to follow that God. So why even say that Baal is an option? And I love this because, because we see Elijah starting up front here going, I have no problem giving you choice because I know one of those things is not real. Does that make sense? He's not worried about it. He's saying, you can pick either. Hey, pick which one. If God is real, pick God. If Baal is real, pick God. I mean, I mean pick Baal, but I know Baal's not real, so I'm like, go ahead I mean, if you want to, but that's a ridiculous choice. They're instructed to make a choice here, but the choice isn't based on who the people like more. It isn't based on what the gods can do for them, how gods fit their worldview, what they can get out of it. The choice they are supposed to make is based on which God is real. Elijah boils this interaction down to a very simple idea. If this God is real, then follow him. And if he's not, then don't. We face that same idea culturally for us right now. We often want to live in the gray area between those things, right? Sure, like God is real, but like, you know, I kind of want to do my own thing. Like, but it, Elijah is presenting a black and white question. Is God real? That's what we have to confront. If so, doesn't that make him worth following? If not, then we need to pay him no attention at all. So Elijah proposes this competition he says, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left. And what he means is he's the only one of the Lord's prophets there. There's several. a there's hundred in hiding, but he's the only one there. He says, but Baal has 450 prophets. So tell you what, get two bulls for us. Baal's prophets, you guys go first. Choose one for yourself. You're probably gonna choose the better bull. That's fine. They choose one for themselves. Cut it into pieces, put it on the wood, but don't set fire to it. And I'll do the same thing with my bull. Then call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, He is God. That's the scenario we see set up here. Is God real? Now, God reveals three things about himself in this story. And the first thing that we're gonna look at is this idea that God is truer. God is truer. We have a tendency to make our story about ourselves, like about us. Like we see ourselves as the central character in our story. Our lives kind of revolve around us and our needs and our wants and our desires. And so we put ourselves at the center of it. It's so ingrained in us that it's about all, us all of the time. And the way that has influenced us is it's to this idea in post-modernity. It's the breakdown of truth. It's the rise of moral relativism. I get to decide my truth. I get to self-determine what I believe is true or not. Does that make sense? That truth becomes a sliding scale and I get to serve as arbiter of what is true and what isn't. I get to define my own truth. And when we think about that personally, we'd say, all right, I get to set the agenda for myself. I want to set the pace. I want to work on the areas I want to work on. I want to fix the um, the things that I want to fix. And I get to pick and choose how we want to interact with God based on convenience or what we like or what we feel like doing. When truth becomes relative, we get to define our own slice of it, and God has to fit within that piece. We like true things, but we struggle with the idea of truth because we often like truth as long as it fits our worldview. And we look for things to confirm what we already believe. But folks, the question that we need to wrestle with here is not, do I like God? The question that we're confronted with here is, is God real? Because everything else flows from that. Everything else flows from that. According to a recent study, nine out of 10 Americans believe in God. The breakdown comes when many of them just don't think he should be telling them what to do. And that's a fascinating distinction, right? Nine out of 10 Americans believe in God, but, I mean, he does his thing, I do mine and we'll be fine. Believe in this cosmic being who's in charge of the universe, but, I mean, I don't really have to listen to him, do I? How can that be? If God is real, how could we not listen to him? How could we not follow him? How could what he says not matter for us? And you might be saying, of course he's real. So what? I believe that. But the challenge is not just to intellectually assent to his realness. It's not just to say it, but to live it, to frame our lives around it. Because when we believe something is true, our behaviors and actions follow. Folks, we aren't called to know God and experience God and worship God because of community, or hope, or blessings, or what we get out of this. We are called to know God first and foremost because he is real. The fact that we benefit greatly is icing on the cake. That's the proverbial buy one and get everything else free. Because in worshiping God for who he is, we find all those other good things. God wants us to understand that he is truer than our own truth. That God is in his essence truth. That God is the truest true that ever trued. God is truer. And this story continues. Verse 25, Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first since there's so many of you. And you call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. All right, so the prophets took the bull and prepared it and they do their thing. Story tells us that they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us! They shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And then they just kept dancing around the altar that they made. You know, one of the things that I think we can take away from this is be very wary of the person who challenges you to something and lets you go first, because they're real confident how that's going to go. Real confident. Elijah's like, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, guys, do your thing. That's great, have fun, have fun. I love that we see in verse 29, there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Like nothing happens there. And so Elijah in this moment, he, he, has, himself, he has himself some fun. Like Elijah leans into this moment. Elijah, this is the way I pictured it. Elijah just kind of like grabs himself like a, like a chair, makes himself a comfortable spot. No, this is not a period appropriate camping chair. Really, but he just makes himself comfortable. Gotta relax this. And Elijah starts taunting them. And now you might be thinking, like, well, he was just saying stuff to them. No, 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 no. No, the text tells us he was taunting them. He started mocking them. I just imagine he's sitting there making himself comfortable. He's like, hey, guys, shout louder. It'll, it, maybe it'll work. Just keep going. Just keep going, right? Just, just a little bit louder. Maybe, guys, maybe. Mick grabs an apple, the snarkiest of fruits, I don't know. Is he busy? Did you guys check his schedule? Because I just, maybe he's got a commitment. I don't know. Is he, is he traveling? Was it a business trip thing? Like, you got, that's, there's a, you got to check with an administrative assistant there, guys. It's just a rookie move. What's, mm, he's sleeping. No, that's got it, right? He's sleeping. That's got to be what it is. Sleeping. Just keep going. Like, maybe it'll wake him up. One scholar actually suggests, and I love this, it's not just that he's sleeping, one suggests he's using the bathroom. (laughs) And I tell you, you definitely want to hitch your wagon to the God who has to use a bathroom. That's what you want to do. The best part of what he's doing here, this is biblical trash talk, like it's just biblical trash talk, but the best part of this stuff is this really happened. Sometimes we read the Bible like a physics textbook, right? Okay, no, that's not fair. I apologize. If you love physics, that's not fair. Let me restate that. Sometimes we read the Bible like I read a physics textbook, right? It's just, it's dry. It's boring. The Bible is funny because it stuff that happened to real people at a real place in a real time. I think this is hilarious that Elijah is just making fun of them. And the best part is he is saying things to them that they believe are true about their own God. Does that make sense? Like he's not making stuff up. All the things that he's saying, that Baal was traveling or sleeping, or maybe he's busy or he couldn't hear you, all that stuff is stuff they believed about Baal. Pointing out, I think, the lunacy of, why would you follow a God who is so limited by these things? Who Baal was supposed to be, is there, that's the things he's using. We often treat God like he's Baal in this story, right? Like God has those same limitations. We often act like God is distracted, like he's too busy, like he's not engaged, or he's not paying attention to what's going on in my life. But folks, the second thing we're gonna look at here that Elijah draws out, that God reveals about himself, is that God is greater. That God is greater. He sets up this comparison between the real, the true God and this idol. Idols for them hit things that were close to home, fertility, rain, things that they needed. We have our own idols as well. And you might be thinking like, well, I don't have a little statue in my house that I pray to. and Some people do, but that's not you, that's okay. But we still have the same issue for us because our idols are anything we allow to take the place of God in our heart. Anything that we allow to be above God or even equal with. Anything that we give equal place in our heart to. When I was in college, went through a really hard season. I blew out my knee a couple times. I was living by myself in one room of a boarding house and I really started to struggle with depression really badly. And living in a room by myself was not a good thing. As you may guess, I'm an extrovert. I like people. And that season was incredibly hard for me. I struggled and just spiraled downward. And I didn't tell anybody because my dad's a pastor and and I grew up in the church and and I'd intern and like, I'm I'm a Christian and like, this shouldn't happen. Like, I shouldn't be wrestling with this stuff. I didn't invite anybody in. But what I wanted more than anything was someone who loved me enough to involve themselves in my story because there was an idol of reputation that I was allowing to control me. What will people think if they know? What will people think if they find out what I'm struggling with? What will people think if they find out what I'm going through? What will people think? And I just fed that idol and I fed it over and over again until its influence increased in my heart. It wasn't a tangible thing. I didn't have a little altar set up to it. But my concern for what other people would think became an idol that was on par with my view of God at that time. For a lot of us, our idols, our issues aren't saying that God doesn't matter at all. It's saying that God matters as much as other things in our life, as much as our families, as much as our jobs, as much as our relationships, as much as our accomplishments as much as our political ideologies, as much as our reputation. But the reality is that our idols always pale in comparison with God. God gets at them by showing how he is greater than what we are looking for. We see how foolish our idols look when we compare them to the real God, how ridiculous they look in the harsh light of day. Where are you putting your hope, folks? Where are you finding your worth? What are you looking for to give your life meaning? What gives you value? We need to be willing to ask those questions and allow that stuff to be dug out of our hearts. It's not saying that nothing should matter at all. It's saying that one thing should matter the most. The story continues on. After that nothing happens at all for the prophets of Baal, Elijah steps up and he says to all the people, he says, come here to me says, so they came to them and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. It says, Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name should be Israel. So then he took those stones and he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold a lot of water. He arranged the wood, he cut the bull into pieces and he laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Now, a couple of things that we... It's important to kind of see what Elijah's doing here. Elijah's using language, purposeful language, to do something for them. He's using, he sort of appeals to the covenant God of Israel here. He's using covenantal language. There are statements here that are loaded with history and with promise and with meaning here. When he says, your name shall be Israel, when he talks about the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes, when he uses some of this language, what he's saying to them is, remember, remember. He's saying, remember. Remember who God is. Remember what he's done. Remember how he has shown up for you. Remember. And then Elijah prays and he calls for God to show up in this moment, not for his own benefit and not even for God to prove himself, but for God to turn the hearts of his people back to him. It shows God's character, God's gracious, faithful, loving, steadfast nature. And Elijah Rebuilds the altar, gets it ready. And then when he asks for the water to to be brought, he's doing it for a very specific reason. Bring these four large drawers with water and soak everything and then do it a second time and then do it a third time. Because remember, this is a drought. This is one of the most precious resources they have. And he is just capriciously wasting it, right? He's soaking everything, but he's doing it for a reason. He's doing it for a reason. The tension is building in this moment. Imagine what it must have been like to be there. Maybe there was a a low rumble in the air, like a far-off storm. Everyone's in suspense. This moment is building to something. The people are waiting to see what happens. And Elijah steps up to the altar to pray. And he says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. Oh, Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. <laughs> and the text tells us that the fire of the Lord fell from heaven fell from the sky and burned up the sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the soil and it licked up all the water in the trench. It burned up everything. Really, the language is it consumed them. That spot is gone from the face of the earth. And the people fell down on their faces and worshiped God because they knew he was real. Elijah had set up a confrontation here, not between God and the false prophets or God and the evil king. The confrontation here, folks, was between God and his people. That's important because the world sees and experiences the reality of God and his love as shown through Jesus, less through confrontation and more through the lifestyle and faith of his people. God was challenging an opponent here, but it wasn't the one we would think, it was his people. And what did he prove to them in this moment? That he is truer, that he is greater, but also that he is nearer. That he's nearer. We see this imbalance in the structure of the story. God's trying to prove something here. Think about the prophets versus Elijah. There's 450 prophets of Baal versus one of Elijah. The prophets of Baal went first, Elijah went last. Prophets of Baal probably took the better bull. Elijah probably got the worst bull. The prophets of Baal had nearly the whole day. Elijah had merely a few minutes. The prophets of Baal expended much action and effort and intensity versus Elijah's simple prayer. The prophets of Baal got no response. Elijah got an immediate response. And what I love here is that Baal, as the storm and weather God, with particular power over lightning, right? With rain and fertility, but lightning, God answered with fire from heaven the exact way that Baal should have. God declared himself to be the true God by doing the thing that was Baal's thing, only God did it better. And the difference was not in the enthusiasm of the worship or the devotion of the followers or the intensity of the experience. The difference was in the one being worshipped. Because only one of them was real. God is nearer, and we see that revealed in his character because he meets the Israelites in this moment. God gives them what they need, not necessarily what they want, because the Israelites would have been fine doing their own thing, and if we are honest, so are we. We're fine doing our own thing. We can become angry or disillusioned with God when he doesn't do what we want him to do or when we think he should do it. but God shows up in a powerful way because that's really a, a misunderstanding of who God is. When we say, God, I need God to do what I want the way I want it, we're putting ourselves in charge and not him. But when we understand who God is, it changes the way we experience everything because what does God do in this story but move towards his rebellious people? He owes them nothing. he shows up anyway to show that he's not distant or disengaged or, or impersonal, that God is both infinite and cosmic and yet personal and knowable. Is God real to you? Is he real to you? Do you know him? Not know of him, but know him. We live like our relationships are real, our desires are real, our pain is real, our struggles are real, but God is not. It's often how we live. But God is not only real, God is near. Elijah stepped in on behalf of the people and God used him to remind his people of who he is. God used Elijah to restore the relationship between God and his people. And he points to Jesus who would do that once and for all because there's no greater picture of God being truer, greater, and near than Jesus. Jesus is called the truth. The truth about God most fully revealed to us. Jesus is greater than sin. Through his death and resurrection, he has conquered that. And Jesus is the fullest example of God's nearness to us. God in human flesh who would come and walk amongst us that we might know God for who he is. God showed up for the Israelites in a way he didn't have to in a form he didn't need to. And he's done that for us through Jesus, meeting us in that moment. Right? I love when you look at these stories, right? Because God moves in 1 Kings 18 towards rebellious and forgetful people, not because they've done anything to deserve it, but frankly, despite the fact that they don't. And that's the same picture of what God has done for us through the gospel through Jesus to meet us in the midst of our rebellion from him, to rescue us and redeem us and draw us towards himself. God is near, nearer than we can imagine. God in the flesh. How amazing that the infinite, sovereign, cosmic Lord of the universe would care about us enough to move towards us. Oftentimes, that's our view of religion, right? It's a pathway to God, our understanding of how we get to God, how we find God. But what's different when we talk here about a relationship with Jesus is that Jesus is the fullest picture of God coming towards us, of God saying, I will meet you where you are. I will come all the way to you and rescue you and draw you towards me. The nearness of God is one of the fundamental truths about who he is. And that is so transformational. So folks, as we close, I just wanna leave you with this question. The question that Elijah was getting at here. Is this God real? Right? Not just is any God real, is this God real? Is the God of the Bible real? Is he real to you? Because everything else we do flows from that one question. If God is real, if God is real, doesn't that God deserve our attention, our affection, our obedience, if that God is real, doesn't he deserve my life? If that God is real, that's the question that everything else falls under. And too often, it's easy for us to live like he's not. Not that we would ever say those words, but that's what it can look like. Why don't you bow your heads with me as we close? As we wrap up, I want to leave you with that question. Is God real? If you're here this morning and you'd call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you believe God is real, how should your life look different? What's God trying to dig out of your heart that you're holding on to? Where are you looking to the wrong things to find worth and meaning and value? And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we're glad you're here. And my hope for you is that you hear maybe for the first time that there is a God who is very much real, who knows you and loves you and cares about you and wants you to know him. Father God, we thank you that you are realer and truer and greater and nearer. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness towards us for the kindness that you've shown towards us, for the grace that you've shown towards us. Father, would you draw our hearts more fully towards you to help us to surrender those things that we let go to, to stop adding things in to you and experience you for who you are. Father, we thank you. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.